0: The following is a resource from the Dwark Hill Study Center. Dwark Hill exists to help Christians take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoy this lecture. All right, let's get going today as we jump into uh, the text, and last week we made it through the letters to the churches, and we mentioned last week that before we get into the vision, where the Lord's going to peel back, remember the book of Revelation is God peeling back the veil of reality and letting us see things as they really are. That's what Revelation, that's the beauty of the book. God is giving us the gift to see things as they really are. He's interpreting reality for us. And what we're going to see in the world sometimes is not going to be pretty. And uh, in Art's prayer uh, this evening, recognizing that times get tough. And sometimes we can distract ourselves from that. But the book of Revelation is going to give us eyes to see reality. But before we're able to discern the world, before we're able to to properly see the world, the book of Revelation forced us to see ourselves. So the letters to the seven churches ground us. Before we jump into this vision of history and this vision of the world, grounds us by pulling back the veil on us and each of the seven churches. The Lord came and revealed to them who they really are. And in so doing, reveals to us who we really are. It's almost like Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, hey, before you go to your brother and try to take the speck out of his eye, take the log out of your own. And so before we go make all these discerning, have all these discerning visions about the world, it's important first we, we be humbled before the Lord uh, and see ourselves rightly. So that's what we looked at last week in the, in the last five uh, letters Then at the end of, uh, or in the second hour last week, we were able to come into John's vision in chapter 4 as John is summoned up into a vision, a transcendent vision of God's throne room. And from here now, through the throne room, we're going to see out over the course of history. We're going to get to see it from the perspective of the throne room. That's what's going on there. And again, this is a necessary grounding Not only that we see who we are, but that we see who God is. Because some of the things in these visions will be troubling to our hearts and to our souls. So it's important that we be grounded in a knowledge of who God is. So let's get back into the vision in chapter 4 and try to remember what we're seeing. We read through it. I won't read it again. But we read straight through the vision of chapter 4 last week to try to give us some... Just to step back and see it. Jan and I were talking... about this. Uh, Jan Montagna, we're we're talking about a pictorial vision of what's happening here, and that's what you're meant to do. Step back and just see it. Let your mind's eye dwell upon that. So as John is summed up in chapter 4 into the throne room, after this I looked, and before me was a door standing open, and the voice that I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, when John gets into that throne room, the first thing we noticed is that he sees a throne, but no image on the throne. There's no image of God given in chapter 4. He sees radiance, he sees beautiful colors, but no image. For as the Lord told the Israelites in Deuteronomy, Hey, you don't try to make an image of me. There's only one image of God, and we'll see that to come here in chapter 5, but we know already it's the Lord Jesus. So John comes up in the throne room. He sees a throne, but no image on the throne. But we learn a lot about the one who's on the throne. For the first thing we get is an image of his covenant faithfulness. And again, we looked at this last week. The image of his covenant faithfulness, which is represented in two ways, I think, in this text. The first way is by the throne that is surrounded by a rainbow, which is to call back to the minds of the readers and the first hearers God's covenantal promises to Noah, that God is a covenant-keeping God. He promised he would not destroy the world again by a flood. And the, the rainbow also represents not only the fact that he keeps his promises that he wouldn't destroy, but on the other side of that was a new creation. That he did destroy the world by a flood, but on the other side of that judgment of destruction came a new creation. And that's exactly where this book is moving toward. We're moving toward a new creation in chapters 21 and 22. So we get a hint of that right here at the beginning in the throne room. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a faithful God. He's a trustworthy God. And the second way that we see his covenant faithfulness is by these 24 elders that are around the throne. And they're worshiping him. But what we notice when we look at these elders is that they have many of the things that the Lord promised to us, his church. Now, we, we said that the, there's debate over who the 24 elders are. Are they representatives of the Old Testament and New Testament church? 12 from the Old, 12 from the New. We'll see that theme kind of pop up throughout the book. Maybe. Uh, there were other options. Heavenly representatives of the total church. Whatever they might be, whoever they might be. They stand before the Lord worshiping with the very things that God promised us, his faithful worshipers and faithful servants, namely thrones, white robes, crowns. And so again, the the Lord peels back the veil, lets us peer into heaven, and what we see is God granting the very things he promises to grant to his suffering church. We see in glory already these things being distributed. So our God is a covenant-keeping God. Then, let's get to where we left off last week. The next thing we learn about God from this wonderful vision of the throne room is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Our God is sovereign. It's really important, I think, for the flow of the book and to set the stage for the rest of the book that the first image we see, or John sees, when he comes up into the throne room is that of a throne. And I think now we're to read the rest of the book in light of that. Don't ever forget when you read through this book that there is one seated on a throne in heaven. The sovereignty of God is meant now to color the rest of our reading of this book. Let me uh, get to where we are. One seated on the throne there. So his sovereignty. This is a tone setter now for the rest of of the book, and we even have it in the praise of the of the creatures around the throne, which we're going to get to in a second. But let's think about verse eleven, the very end of the um, of the chapter, chapter four. And they're praising him around the throne. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Lord, you are sovereign. You've created all things. And everything that exists, exists because of your will. Everything that exists, and there's going to be some really scary things that exist in this book. The beast. Now, don't don't get me wrong, this raises questions. But the beast exists only by the will of God. Satan, the dragon, exists only by the will of God. Now, you can raise the question, well, Lord, why do you allow him to exist? Good question. He'll tell you when you need to know. But for now, he just lets you know everything that exists, exists because of my will. So his sovereignty is laid out for us right at the outset. And this is to encourage us, and as I say, be a tone setter for the rest of the book. Everything exists by his will. And then another image of the sovereignty, and and, uh, we mentioned this as we were closing, is right before the throne, this is in verse 6. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So John sees this throne, and there's worship happening all around the throne, and then in front of the throne is a sea of glass. And I mentioned right as we were closing that the importance of this, again, as a tone setter for the rest of the book, is that for the people of God, particularly in the Old Testament, the sea was consistently an image of chaos, but not just chaos, but, but purposeful chaos. The, the raging of the opposition to God and to his people. I'll just give you one example of this from uh, Psalm 93. Um, where's Psalm 93? Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. This is the psalmist singing, The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. It's not that the waves were really loud. It's that the opposition that was being mounted against him and against God and against his people were like the sea billows that were just rolling over him. And the image of the sea with this perpetual motion and chaos that seems like it can't be contained or controlled was used throughout the Scriptures as an image of the oppressive powers that were brought against the Lord and against His anointed. But again, what do we see? Throughout the rest of the book, man, the stormy waves are going to get pretty high. It's going to be pretty serious. But what we see right at the outset as a tone setter is that before the Lord's throne is a sea of glass. Our God is a God who calms the sea. His voice is mighty over the waters, Psalm 29 says. And here we think of the image of Jesus. And we're going to get to Jesus in chapter 5. But again, what does Jesus do? They're in the boat, and it's a stormy sea, and the disciples are panicking. Oh, Lord, we're going to die. They come to Jesus. They ask him that obnoxious and insulting question. Teacher, don't you care that we're about to die? The gumption that they have to ask Jesus whether or not he cares if they're about to die. But Jesus, who's asleep, by the way, right? They're fishermen, many of them, who should be completely at home at the sea. Jesus is a man of the land. He's a carpenter, but he's completely at peace. He's asleep in the midst of the storm, not phasing him. But the disciples are troubled and they wake him up. Don't you care that we're about to perish? And he rebukes their faith and then rises, and with a word, the uncontrollable sea, with a word, he just says, peace, and it's a sea of glass. Our God is a God who calms the sea. The winds may roar, the waves may be huge and intimidating, but our Lord is the Lord who just calms the sea and who's able to do it with a word. And the image that we're given here right in the beginning of this vision is trust Him. Trust Him. When you're buffeted about by the sea, trust Him. That before His throne, it's a sea of glass. And he will make it right. Though, though chaos swirls, be confident in him. And then finally in this vision, we learn that this God who has a sea of glass before him and a rainbow around him and 24 elders praising him is a God who will judge the earth. And we get this in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now remember, I, I gave that handout a few weeks ago when we were looking at the structure of the book and the, the seven cycles that make up this book. And in that in that uh, handout, I, I, I gave you the end of each of those visions and showed how at the end of each of those visions, we're brought again to the final day of judgment. So that each of the seven visions takes us from the beginning, really from Christ and the cross, all the way through to second coming. And all of the seven cycles, the the, uh, seals that we'll look at tonight, the trumpets and the bulls, all end with this, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. But then as we said, as we go through each one, it ramps up a little bit, right? Then all of a sudden there's an earthquake. Then all of a sudden there's a hailstorm. And then it's an earthquake like has never been seen before and hailstones that are 100 pounds, I mean just, you know, cataclysmic. So we're ramping things up. But all of these are coming from the throne. They're images of judgment. All the judgment is coming from the throne. The voice of the Lord is mighty, and from his throne, he will bring it about. So here we get a little hint of the judgments that are about to come. Okay, so that's the vision we get of the throne room of God, and this is the tone setter for us as we go through the rest of the book. Now, let's look finally at uh, C the worship around the throne, and uh, make a couple observations about it. First, in verse 6, we learn that worship, so when we peer up into heaven, John gets this great vision, what do we see going on there? And what we see is worship. And what we learn is that worship is what all creation is meant to do. This is what you were created to do. And just think about how important that is. It's important to know your purpose. I sat through uh, Justin Sherratt's class when he was going through Aristotle. and I mean, this is just typical wisdom, right? It's the wisdom we get from Aristotle. We don't need the Bible to tell us that when we use things for the purpose they were meant to be used for, we succeed. And when we use things for a purpose they were not meant to be used for, we destroy. In my church, the PCA, our confession is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's what we use to teach our children the faith and the first catechism question is what is the chief end of man or what is the chief purpose of mankind and the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever that's important you get that wrong you mess everything up Right, we, we use our lives for something other than glorifying him and enjoying him. And what we end up doing is breaking things. We destroy creation. We destroy ourselves. We destroy our relationships. It's only when we understand the purpose. I was created to glorify him and to enjoy him. Enjoy him by enjoying his gifts. And when I own that, things go well. Right, I am what God meant me to. To be. So what we learn in this text is that what man was created to be and what all creation was meant to do is worship. So we get this in verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, this might be hard to imagine. So we've got these four creatures one like uh, an ox, and one like a man, and one like an eagle, and so forth, with eyes all around, with six wings. And what we have in this vision is the combination of a couple things. We have a combination of the vision Ezekiel gets in Ezekiel chapter 1, where he too sees four living creatures around the throne. But in Ezekiel's vision, each of the living creatures has four heads, or four faces, excuse me, one head, four faces. On each side, so he sees all the way around, but it's all the living creatures, but uh, represented in one head with four faces. The other image that we get here is that of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah finds himself before the throne, and, and there, flying around the, the uh, throne, are the seraphim with six wings. With two, they fly, and with two, they cover their feet. And with two, they cover their eyes, lest they look upon his holiness. And and what we have here, it seems, in in, uh, Revelation is a bringing together of those images. But what's represented in this is all creation. Four, as we'll find out, again, this is not numerology. We're not doing secret numbers here. But four generally represents the number of the created order. So what we'll see is the four corners of the earth, the four directions of the compass, the four living creatures, the four angels that will hold back the the winds of judgment upon the earth. The number four, as it gets uh, used through the book of Revelation, generally represents the created order. And so the fact that we have these four living creatures, I think what is being represented to us is all the created order. Whether it's domesticated animals, whether it's wild animals, whether it's man, whether it's birds and birds of prey, all creation is created for this purpose, and that is to worship him. And these are the ones with eyes all around. That is, they have, they have almost infinite knowledge, right? It's not seven, but it's eyes all over the place, which is a very disturbing image if you try to picture it. But I think the idea is we have tremendous vision, And so they see God in all his glory and they rightly praise him and they praise him perpetually. Day and night, we're told in verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. So the first observation about the worship that's happening up there is it's what all creation is meant to do. But then let's just think about how God is worshiped. What 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 is he being praised for? What we have first is this ascribing of God uh, ascribing worth to God, which is what the word worship means. Right? It means to ascribe worth. He's worthy of all praise. So what is he worthy of? What is he, what is he being praised for here? Well, first, let's go back to the, uh, to the four living creatures there in verse 8. He's being praised first for his holiness. And, and here again, we have a, a, a reflection back to Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah is in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. And there he gets a grand vision of God's throne. Again, no image on the throne. It's just too brilliant. Smoke is clouding up the throne room, right? The temple so that he cannot see. And the thresholds are shaking. It's an intimidating uh, vision that he gets. And the seraphim, as they are flying around, are singing together. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of... Of your glory, and so also here, again in the heavenly throne room, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And in the Bible, repetition is very important. It's the way that uh, that the biblical writers uh, um, emphasize things. Right? They don't have exclamation marks. They don't have bold print, italics. They don't have any of those things. What they have is repetition. So anytime, just a little hermeneutical point. Anytime you're reading the Bible and there's repetition. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, right? It's like, bing, 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 this is important. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? That repetition brings intensity to what is being said. Or even when you're reading in the parables or so forth and you get parables that are backed up on each other, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, you know, Matthew is saying, hey, get this, this is really important to drive this home. Not that any one scripture is more important than other scripture, but it's just like, hey, I really want to drive a point home here. And nowhere do we have an attribute of God ascribed to God with this kind of intensity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then that itself is repeated and sung back and forth among the four living creatures, day and night, without cease. So, he's praised for his holiness. He's praised, secondly, for his omnipotence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's praised for his eternality, who was and who is, we we thought already, we've spent some time on that divine name, the I Am, the self-existent and eternal one. I, uh, Art, Art prayed for us uh, tonight to open up. And I, I always comment, and I've known uh, Art Luce for many, uh, many years, and we've prayed together many, many times. And uh, I always uh, am struck when uh, Art prays, or not always, but many times when he prays, he will pray, uh, Lord, thank you for who you are. He'll begin his prayers that way. It just sticks with me. And, uh, and it seems to me utterly appropriate. That's what, that's what they're praising him. It's not just I thank you for what you've done. I thank you and praise you for who you are. You are holy, holy, holy. You are almighty. I just glorify you for who you are. I mean, yes, you've done wonderful things for me. But in the first place, you are worthy of it. Not just for what you've done, but you are worthy for who you are. You are holy and you're almighty almighty and you are eternal. And as we've already looked at, you are sovereign. You've created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. So you are sovereign. So first we have the ascribing to God worth for who he is, but then also for what he does. It is appropriate to give God praise for what he does, not just who he is. And what does he do? Well, in our text, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We mentioned that back with the divine name, the importance of that. It's a switch in the name. It's not the I am anymore. It's the I am with coming in it. The one who is and who was and who will be would have made sense, but that's not what he said. I am the one who was and who is and who is to come. That is, I am the one who is and who was, and I'm the one who's going to deliver my people, and that's part of my name. And here, the the four living creatures sing praise back and forth. You are the one who is coming to deliver his people What else has he done? He's the creator, verse 11, and he is the sustainer by you, all things who are created, and by you they have their being, so that right now we not only thank God that he made us, though that's appropriate, but that right now he sustains us. The only reason right now your molecules are holding together in your body is because the Lord wills it. And when the Lord stops willing it, you will stop living. We live by his will. So He's coming to redeem, He's created, He sustains us every minute, and then uh, lastly, He redeems us. But we're going to hold that to chapter 5 because that's what all of chapter 5 is about. One last comment about heavenly worship and that we learn from this text, and that is finally that worship establishes a proper perspective. It will establish a proper perspective through the book, but it establishes a proper perspective for you and your life. Let me just think again back to Isaiah 6, since it's so related to what's going on here. If you remember that story, it's a great story, uh, a great vision in Isaiah 6. And if you want a good book on this, really the first theological book I ever read, um, I read it as a high schooler, and it was R.C. Sproul's Holiness of God. And you just can't get a, a, a... I remember it just opened my eyes to theology for the first time and to the nature and character of God. So if you're looking for an easy read, but a good theological read about God's holiness, I can't recommend highly enough, um, uh, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, <clears throat> but, um, and he spends a lot of time in this Isaiah 6 passage, but what's great about Isaiah 6 is, similar to John, is that it's the year King Uzziah dies, so there's chaos and tumult, and the, you know, the king died, it's this stressful time, and, in, and, and Isaiah gets a vision, he's in the temple now. And the thresholds are shaking, and, and there's the, the, the Lord seated on his throne. He doesn't describe him. Smoke is covering, the, the, the seraphim are singing. And then, how does Isaiah respond? And just like John, boom, down he goes face plant. You know, he goes down to the ground, and he cries out, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. This is Isaiah. This is the man of God. This is a prophet whose lips were used to speak the word of God. This is a holy man. Yet in the presence of God's awesome glory, down he goes. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he sees his sin like he had never seen it before. And good, proper worship. And this is the importance, one of the importance Uh, importance is, of our gathering together in good, corporate worship, God-centered, God-glorifying corporate worship, because it sets us to have the proper perspective to know who we are. We come to worship the Lord, boom, down we go. We should be confessing our sins. And then, of course, just like John, the Lord does not leave Isaiah there, but Lift him up, if you will, by the seraphim, sending a coal from the altar and putting upon his unclean lips and then interpreting it for Isaiah and saying, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. That's worship. It's what we do. It should be every Sunday. We go through that. Well, here, this worship also establishes the perspective for those who are around the throne. For we're told that when this all went on, the 24 elders, this is a... Uh, uh, Verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. See, here they wear these crowns. It's a gift from God. And it's a wonderful thing and it's a beautiful thing and it's something to celebrate and to cherish. But what happens when we see the awesome glory of God? Right? The 24 elders fall down before the throne and they take their crowns off and they lay them down before the throne. You are worthy. All that I have, I give to you. All that I have, I can only lay before you. Whatever authority this crown represents, it's in subjection to you. I lay it all before you. But see, if we don't have this vision... Then that crown starts to fit kind of nice. It feels pretty good, this crown. I like having this kind of authority. The gifts I have, I forget that they're gifts, they just become who I am. This is why worship is so important. We come back again and again into that worship, and we see the Lord, and it's there that I remember. Boom, I'm a man, a woman of unclean lips, my crowns, whatever I have, whatever Lord you've given me, the the privilege to be a father, to be a husband, to be a teacher, to be a pastor, to be an employer, to be a world I don't care what it is. The gifts you have, I lay them down. Worship sets us in a proper perspective and it'll set us in the proper perspective for the rest of this book. Okay, let's move to chapter 5. Yeah, the vision of the Lamb. Let's move to chapter 5. And again, I think this, in my opinion, this might be the, the greatest chapter. You can't say these things, but uh, even though I'm on tape now. Uh, maybe the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Uh, I use this so often when we give the Lord's Supper as they're distributing the elements. I, I find myself coming back and reading this while the uh, elements are being distributed. But um, just a, a wonderful chapter. Let me read it so we can see it. We won't do this for every chapter. This will be the last time, I think, until the end. That we do this. But just just enjoy this vision. This is chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one with a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. These elders can't stay standing. Just poof down the wo- poof down. The poof down. <laughs> just, the, the pray. It's just too poof down they go. They stand up to worship and somebody prays them. Down they go. These guys just they they just fall before the Lord as they're so taken with his glory. What a wonderful, beautiful chapter Revelation five is. So let's feel, let's sit, get our minds back in the context. Everything's awesome. John has been summoned up into the the holy throne room. And what a vision he's gotten in seeing this one who's upon the throne. God is on his throne, a sea of glass. Everything is awesome and great. And then he sees that in the hand of the one who's seated on the throne, there's a scroll. The scroll here representing God's redemptive purposes, His purpose, and how now? How do you get the sea of glass? How do you get the the waves down below to be the sea of glass that's in front of the throne? Right, it's in the scroll. The scroll is God's redemptive purposes for the world that now need to be worked out. So, man, this is awesome. There's the Lord. There's the scroll, and then it all falls apart because a search goes on. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. And things turn bad here everything's awesome, what a beautiful vision, and there's the scroll, and there's the purposes of God, and and man, the, the wind and the waves are going to become a sea of glass, but boy, that scroll is sealed with seven seals. Well, who's going to open it? And the mighty angel goes on a search. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And the answer is no one. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. Think back about the story of the Old Testament. The promises of God that were made from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Well, who? Who is the worthy champion who will do this? Is it, is it Cain? No, he slays his brother Abel. Is it Noah, perhaps? He builds the ark, sails to a new creation. Perhaps it's Noah. No, he gets drunk and naked and starts cursing his sons. Well, maybe it's Abraham. He's going to be the father of a great nation. Maybe it'll be Abraham. No, it's not Abraham. He sleeps with Hagar and lay, lies to Pharaoh and doesn't trust the Lord. Well, maybe it's Jacob. Well, maybe, maybe it's Joseph. Well, maybe it's Moses. Maybe it's David. And time after time after time, no one is found worthy. They're a group of losers. And no one's found worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seals. And John, frankly, falls apart. John just, John just melts down. There's no one worthy. In all of history, from all the biblical characters to all the philosophers of the world, no one is found worthy. I think of one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs is uh, Blind Willie McTell. It's on a bootleg album. These are my They know I like Dylan, these guys. Blind Willie McTell, McTel, it's, it's on one of the bootleg albums. It was cut off of the album Infidel, so you can't find it there. But you can find it on this bootleg series. But one of my favorite lines, and Dylan has a way of getting real apocalyptic. And one of my favorite lines from Blind Willie McTell is this, it's right at the very end. He's kind of looking at the haunting remembrances of slavery, just the evil people do to one another. And then he sings this line at the end. Well, God is in his heaven, and we all want what's his. But power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all that there is. God is in his heaven. We all want what's his. But power and greed and corruptible seeds seem to be all that there is. And that's just, that just tells, that, that is what the angel comes back with. When he goes on his quest for who's worthy to open the scroll, that's what he comes back with. Power and greed and corruptible seed is all that there is. And John has a meltdown. He goes from ecstatic joy to crushing despair, and he weeps. It just said, but no one was in heaven or under the earth who could open the scroll or even look inside it. In verse 4, and I, John gets personal, I wept and wept. Repetition. Not just I wept. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. John melts down and he's not a wuss. (laughs) It's not just that John's a big crybaby, you girly man. No, John melts down here and his weeping is absolutely appropriate because John realizes the horror. He looks down and he realizes if this stays the way it is, the wind and the waves remain. Death wins. Persecution wins. He sees the horrors of a world with no relief. And he weeps. I've preached on this this text before and I asked the congregation... I really don't understand why everybody's not weeping. It seems to me that John is one of the only people in the history of the world who actually sees the world for what it is and he responds appropriately. He weeps. The world is hell. It's misery out there. Why don't we all just weep all the time? And the answer is, and Blaise Pascal said this in the 18th century, he said, he said the reason, he, didn't, he wasn't quoting on this, but now I'm using him. But he said the reason is because we distract ourselves. He said this in the 18th century. He said man does not like to be in quiet. Because when he or she is in quiet, they have to think about reality. You have to sober up and thoughts start coming into your head. So, so what we do is we distract ourselves. Now, in the 18th century, I, how do you distract? distract yourself i mean forget about it blaze you have no idea i mean now today the earbuds go in we get in the car boom first thing we do is turn on the radio we distract ourselves we don't want i flick on the tv i watch a good movie i I text a friend just to get a conversation going completely meaningless but i text a friend hey what's up anything to distract myself i watch the news praise god for a commercial i don't want to have to look at it even the news reporters know you can only give misery in short clips, and then you've got to give them some happy, happy stuff. Get to the weather, quick. Do something. Hey, how'd the Yankees do, Bob? So we can't look at it for too long. We have to distract ourselves. We have to have our attention diverted, or else we will weep and weep. There's just no other option. Because outside of Jesus Christ, it's all meaningless. And the only thing that keeps you from committing suicide in that worldview is distraction just forget what's coming try not to think about it and so John weeps I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy but then the tension is cut relief is given with three of the greatest words if you feel the moment three of the greatest words in all the Bible verse 5 then one of the elders said to me do not weep John is sobbing. And the elder comes in him and says, hey, bud, don't weep. Why not weep? Suck it up, man. No, he doesn't tell him to suck it up. This isn't some stoic, hey, suck it up. Stop crying, you girly man. That's not what's going on here. Do not weep. Look. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John's weeping is interrupted, not with distraction and diversion like ours, but with a genuine solution, a worthy champion. There's only one worthy champion. And the elder points him out. And I, I, I just really believe this. Jesus Christ is the only reason not to weep perpetually. He's the only reason not to weep. And again, I just, I, I want to challenge you. I said this at the beginning of this course and the beginning of Dwark Hill when I first introduced it. What's really important to us here at Dwark Hill is that we see our Christianity as not being one aspect of our life, but as shading and coloring everything in our lives. He's the only reason not to weep. He shapes and he changes everything. You can't just add Jesus on to your dinky little life. When Jesus comes in, he changes everything. You can't see the world the same anymore. For the first time, there's actually meaning and purpose. And John sees it. And so he goes from ecstatic joy to absolute despair, back now to joy. Where are we at here? Okay. Let's think about what John saw. And we've already read it, but let's think through it now. The elder comes to him, he says, don't weep, look. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. John is pointed to the king. That's what these images are. The lion of Judah. Remember, Judah was given the scepter to reign. The kings would come from Judah. Don't weep, look, there's a king. The root of David, another royal image. He has triumphed. That's the image here, an image of a king. But it's really important that we let Revelation shape our vision here to understand what kind of king he is because, as, as we've already read, what you look and see is not what you would have expected. And this is the beauty of the book of Revelation. It gives you what you don't expect. But it breaks the world open and makes you look at it and think about it. Why is that what I'm seeing? Because when John turns to look, what he sees is an image of triumph but he does not see a triumphalistic image, right? He he sees an image of triumph, of victory, but not a triumphalistic image, not an image that you would have envisioned when he says, hey, look at the lion because this is no ordinary lion that he sees, right? What does he see? Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse six, then I looked and behold a lamb standing as if slain. This is really important, again, as a tone setter now for the rest of the book, because you have got to let this be the lens through which you look for victory in your life and in the life of the church. This is what triumph looks like. It looks like a slain lamb. This is so important for our expectations and our living. What should I expect in my life? What is, y'all remember this phrase, the victorious Christian life? What is the victorious Christian life? This is the victorious Christian. This is what it looks like. It looks like a slain lamb. And that's what we've got to look for then in our own lives as we follow this lamb. And this is important because it exposes the triumphalistic visions of power that the world has. See, the world doesn't think of power in these terms, right? The images of power would be the image of a lion, a king with all the pomp and the glory. That's the the world's images, idolatrous images, triumph and, and oppression and tyranny. You inflict power and glory. But that's not the kind of glory that John sees in the triumph of the only one in the history of mankind that is worthy to open the scrolls. I think, at least as I was doing this, I wrote down so I wouldn't forget the words to that one section from just a beautiful hymn. Um, when I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I also love singing this one. We're giving the supper. But um, I think it's the third, the third uh, stanza. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? You want to know what the greatest crown, the greatest image of authority and power in the history of the world was? A crown of thorns. A crown of thorns was the richest crown you could ever compose. But man, that just blows away. It just exposes the idolatrous visions of power that we see in all around us by all those who were not worthy to open this goal. You can, they don't dare get their hands on this scroll. They're not worthy to open it. They can't handle this kind of authority. Only one such as this, this unordinary lion. But at the same time, don't be fooled because the weakness here that you see in the image of a lamb, don't be fooled. Because it's weak in one sense, but it's not in another. This is no ordinary lamb either. It's not an ordinary lion because it looks like a lamb, but it's no ordinary lamb because think about this lamb. What does this lamb look like? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the the 24 elders. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a slain lamb, but my goodness, throughout the history of the world, there's been millions of slain lambs. What's so big about that? But I'll tell you one thing there's never been in the history of the world. A slain lamb standing. Here is a no ordinary slain lamb. He's a slain lamb who is standing victoriously the other side of death. And then think about the other images, which we've we've already looked at. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. What do we say those meant? The, The horns, perfect power. The eyes, perfect knowledge. This is no ordinary lamb. This is the lamb of lambs, the king of kings, right? Who is a lamb, but who is victorious, conquers death, and now has all authority and all power. So what's the result of this great vision? Cosmic praise. Just the heavens just rip open now in chapter five with praise. And I want to make a few observations about this praise and then we'll see. Maybe we'll be, maybe we'll be at coffee. Let's just think about this praise now. So he sees, he sees the, uh, the lamb standing, and he's, he's, he's slain, but he's standing. He's got the seven horns and seven eyes. And then we have this cosmic breakout of praise. And let's make a few op- observations about the praise. First of all, it is an ever-expanding praise it's like it's like ripples and waves that now start around the throne but just look in the text there's three waves of praise in this text and notice how they're just increasing and expanding look at where they start in verse eight and when he had taken it the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down here they go again down they go before the lamb each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song so, so the praise begins right around the throne. Got the four living creatures, the 24 elders, right around the throne. Poof, down they go. They're praising and they're honoring him and glorifying him. But then look in verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb. So it, it starts with the 24 elders around the throne and then... And then Boom, out to the heavenly host, myriads of angels, and 10,000 times 10,000, just, can you imagine this choir, just praising, singing this new song, Worthy is the Lamb. But then look at verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's the movement of this book. It's going from the throne in chapter 4, but it's, it's, it's not going to stay there. The glory of God doesn't stay around the throne. Oh, it's going to go out and it's going out into all creation so that by the end, all the created order. That's what we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's where it's going. John, John sees it. He sees the whole story there. It's just flowing throughout history. And everything in heaven and in the earth and in the sea and all that is in them is praising the Lord. So first, this cosmic praise is ever-expanding. And then the second observation about the worship of the Lamb that we should make is that we participate in it right now. I just hope you get excited to go to church on Sunday. Because while you're worshiping in your dinky little church, you are participating in this grand worship service. And you see a point of connection right here in our text. Back up in verse 8. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Right, your prayers and probably your songs with the harps are brought right into the throne. They're right there at the innermost center. Our prayers, our songs are lifted and joined with the heavenly choir around the throne. We are not spectators in this book of the worship that's going on of the Lord. You've, and we don't have to say, man, it's going to be great one day. Church, and I know, I know our churches... Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. I'm a pastor. I know my church definitely does not feel this way. I have to convince my people, this is what you're doing. Rejoice. Celebrate. You are part of this right now. This little moment of coming together with your brothers and sisters on Sunday morning is a little foretaste of the singing and the praise that we will participate in in the fullness then, but right now. That's that's what's awesome about this vision is right now. We participate in it. We're not spectators. So first, it's ever expanding. Secondly, we participate in it right now. And then thirdly, again, the lamb is praised for all that he's worth. And let's just think what he's praised for. So the first wave of praise, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. So the first bit of praise is, you are worthy to take the scroll. And you know why he's worthy? Because he died. He he is the only one worthy to handle this kind of authority because he himself manifested his worth by being obedient even to the death of the cross, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore, because he did not count equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient to death, even the shameful death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. He is worthy because he was slain. And he's also worthy because of what he's purchased. This is, I'm, I'm in verse 9, by the way. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood you have purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Notice four things, right? So what he's saying there is people from all the earth, right? You've purchased a people and you have made them to be kings and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So we praise him for what he has purchased, a universal people. It's what you and I are part of. And then verse 12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And count the number of things here. Again, this is not a secret code. But it's meant to tell us something, right? He is worthy of everything. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, praise. Seven things. And the point is, what, no other thing? Just those seven. That's what he's worthy to receive. No, no, seven, get the point. You are worthy to receive everything. You're worthy of, every, you're worthy of praise for everything. You, everything is due to you and everything is owed to you. You are worth everything. Again, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We do all to the glory of God because he's worthy of all of it. That's the image that's given here. So he's worthy of all. Now, as we close chapter 5 and then set ourselves up to come back and to look at the, uh, the breaking open of the seals, I just want us to think about and, and to, to, to feel the beauty of chapters 4 and 5 as we move forward to the book, because now it gets a little ugly, right? Right? As I heard one pastor say, you put on your crash helmets now when you jump into chapter six. But we go into this and we go into the rest of the book and frankly, you go into the rest of your life in light of this. And I think in some way we can relate. Not, we can't quite relate, but we can relate to these early churches in some ways. I just got to believe these churches felt alone, insignificant, in light of the whole Roman Empire. I mean, who were they? A little church in Smyrna. Some church in Pergamum. A little insignificant group in Philadelphia. People who are out of work because they can't can't get jobs because they have to worship these gods and so they're struggling around for food. They look so weak and so insignificant. But what this vision, as it starts out, tells you is you're not alone. And you're not insignificant. You and I are part of something amazing. <laughs> we're, we're part of something cosmic. We're part of something that reaches to all creation. That's the vision we have here. And we participate in it with our praise and our worship even now. Now, what we'll do is we'll take a break for coffee. We'll come back. And now the scroll that's in the hand of the Lamb is going to be broken open. And we'll see. I think we can get through the, the, uh, the seals. Let's uh, transition now. Into chapters six and seven of uh, of Revelation. Now let's just remember the the basic cycle that I gave you on the uh, on that sheet. I think I I don't know I might have some sheets if people still don't have them or would like them. Um, let's remember what we have. We have seven series of visions that are telling the same story throughout the book. Um, and that is a vision from heaven of the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And then we cycle back and we look at it again. We use the illustration of of instant replay coming out of football play from different angles. So now we're going to get one angle at this. But it's not just different angles, but as we progress through the book, the, the visions will become more intense, and the emphasis of each vision will shift toward the end there'll be greater attention given to the end so the the book you feel the momentum of the book is pulling you forward okay so so just so you know where let's remember where we are here Um, and each of these cycles is going to bring us to final judgment and we're going to come come back and look at it and we're going to be taken back to final judgment so the seventh seal will bring us to an image a vision of final judgment and yet it will continue on again just a quick uh, structural note also, that as we move now through these particular, these next three visions, the the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, that there is a pattern to all of them. It's a four-three pattern. The first four of each of these will have to do with the earth, and as I said, four represents the created order. So the first four seals, the first four trumpets, the first four bowls will all have to do with God's judgments upon the earth. Then we will have the last three will be taken back up into heaven and get a heavenly perspective again. One last note, and I'll remind you of this as we go, but just to lay it out so you kind of sense where we are and where we're going. In the seals and the trumpets, you have the four three pattern I'm talking about four judgments upon the earth, and then three, we get back up into the heavenly room. But in the seals and the trumpets, the three gets interrupted. So it's four, two, interruption, one. And then with the bulls, you do not get that. And again, part of the reason is is because the momentum of the book. We get to the bulls, the pace picks up too. All of a sudden, final judgment. We just start moving quickly. So We'll see that in the seals. The pattern that we'll look at. now. I have here for. Uh, I just. I'll get rid of this. And probably it's hard to see. It's a black and white. It was a woodcut, of course, by Albrecht Durer. Uh, but this is his uh, rendition of the four horsemen. Uh, you see, kind of going from uh, from right to left. There, you've got the white horse, the red horse, white horse with the with the uh, the bow, uh, the conquering with conquest, the red horse with the with the rider with the sword, to uh, to take peace from the earth, the. Uh, the rider on the black horse with it 's hard to see, I know, but he 's holding scales here we 'll see that in the book he has scales and he 's weighing he 's rationing food, uh, bringing economic disaster and then uh, finally, we have this rider down here on the uh, on the pale green horse, which is uh, uh, death and Hades is down here following behind him, eating up all the dead bodies so uh, so the, the the pale horse and the one who rode on him was death, and Hades came with him and there's uh, the image of Hades again. It's very hard to see, but if you want later, you can look at it or go Google it. Albert Durer, uh, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. That's just I just threw it up there because it's interesting. But uh, okay, let's let's uh, let's jump uh, now to the seals. All right, John's weeping. So John was ecstatic with joy, then John's weeping. Um, uh, Matt, Matt asked a good question about, but didn't, didn't John know no one was worthy? And and it's true. You know, you wonder why is John, John, you know this, right? You know about this stuff, (laughs) but, uh, but he is, he's caught up in this vision and he experiences it in a fresh and new way. And, and through his, uh, emotions, we experience it. We say, Oh yeah, yeah, there's no one worthy. And then, and then it builds you up for the, the climactic praise, uh, that, that comes out. So John has gone from peace to, to an ecstatic joy to, to horrible weeping and now his weeping has been turned again to joy and just as you think well wow then I mean you got the lamb and the lamb is worthy and, and uh, he's going to unlock the scroll and, and wow this is going to be wonderful all hell breaks loose Right? I mean, so so you got, it seems like everything's going to be great. You would expect now, and he broke the first seal, and all the evildoers were cast out. And then he broke the second one, and all injustice was, and then all suffering, uh, that's not what happens. And so we get a little bit of a shock uh, here as we, uh, as we get the opening of these, these uh, scrolls. So we get some shock. Uh, We might ask, but I I thought it was God's purpose to turn everything into a sea of glass, to end evil, tyranny, and uh, et cetera. And the answer is, yes, it is, but not yet. It is, but not yet. One of the themes we will see as we go through here is wait. the theme of delay, which helps explain the four, two, delay, one theme delay is worked as we'll see worked right into the text itself in a literary way you are forced to wait you get to the six it's like the skies are rolled back as a scroll you're ready for the end and then you pause so so delay is all through this book and so yes god is going to do this but not yet instead what what john gets here and and i guess we'll try to read this i I really encourage you now to read uh if you can and give you homework, make you feel like a student here, but uh, but maybe read uh, these visions before you come in. Maybe you have, but uh, just so you can do it, because we may not read every part of it. And I'll be referring to things. But um, instead, what John sees is not the end of evil, tyranny, injustice, suffering, death. But instead, what he gets is a vision of the turmoil of our age. He's going to see first coming to second coming and what it looks like. And it doesn't look like peace and bliss and a sea of glass. It it looks rough, and that's, that's the vision that he's going to get. So, so uh, let's think about that. As the gospel now penetrates into the world, the, the, the lamb is triumphing and he's breaking the seals, and as that gospel penetrates into the world, it's going to create upheaval. So let's, let's uh, jump right in to the seals A, the four legendary horsemen here of the apocalypse. And these come in, in pretty rapid succession. Um, the, these are in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6. Now, these horsemen are not literal figures. I think you know, you could probably guess I was going to say that now. I mean, we've kind of sensed how we're reading the book. These are images. They are not literal figures. But what they are, rather, are forces that um, run through history. Right? There are different forces that make their way through history and that work themselves out in real historical figures. I mean, real historical figures participate in one of the horsemen. But the horsemen themselves are not literally apocalyptic figures that one day you'll open your door and a red horse will go flying by. And no, that's, that's not what. These are forces that are working themselves out through the whole age now from first coming to second coming. So let's think about what they are. Let's, let's work through it. Chapter 6, I watched as the land opened the first of the seven seals. Now remember, the seals are not the scroll. The seals, so maybe you haven't thought about this, I should be clear. Right? You've got a scroll. It's, it's got writing on the inside and on the back. And the scroll has seven seals. So you know a uh, seal, the wax seal. So you melt the wax, you, 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 you put it down, and then you, you seal it. And, and in order to get to the, soul, you ne- the scroll, you need to break the seal. And you're going to have to break each of these. So the breaking of the s- seals is not the scroll. This is not the content of the scroll. This is just the, the bringing about of the contents of the scroll okay so I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder come I looked and there before me was a white horse its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest all right quick word about this first horseman uh, because there's a lot of debate about him Okay. The other three, there's not, I think, a lot of debate once we grant that it's not a literal figure. But the, the first one there is. Some commentators say, this is Christ. The rider on the white horse is Christ. And for some good reasons. Um, for one, uh, later we're going to see, toward the end of the book, Christ um, uh, in white on a white horse. All right, coming to, to conquer his enemies. Um, The image here, nowhere else in the book do we see anybody in white that is bad. Um, So the image here, some commentators say, is this must be Christ. He's coming to conquer with the gospel. The gospel is going forth into the world. And then on the other side of the gospel, all hell breaks loose. And we get the the red, the the, the, uh, black, and the pale horse. So I, I, I throw that out. I do not believe this is Christ, and uh, many commentators take this same position. And, and uh, let me, let me uh, make my case uh, for why I don't think this is Christ. Uh, rather, I think this is a symbol of conquest and, and uh, uh, conquering that goes through all the ages. Every army, every nation that has sent out its armies to conquer their enemies and to take over other people's lands, I think that is the force that is being spoken of here. It's this, this is not a good image. The, the rider on the white horse, you don't go, yay, when he shows up. This is, uh, this is bad. Now, the reason for this is because this text is rooted, as I said, when we read these texts, that we don't pull them out of thin air. We've got to root them in their Old Testament context. And the Old Testament context for this is Zechariah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 14, Right, we're not going to go back and read those, but I, I, I offer them to you. We just don't have time. But particularly Zechariah chapter 6. Now in Zechariah chapter 6, God is judging his people for their idolatry. Okay, And the, the judgment that he sends comes in the form of four horsemen. But they're all linked with one chariot to go forth to the north and to the south and to the west and to the east and to bring his judgment. Okay, So you've got these four and the four colored horses, the four colors here, linked together to bring judgment against Israel and, the, and, uh, and their idolatry. Being the fact that this is rooted in that image, it would be very odd to then say, but in this case, the white is a good guy. When in the Old Testament image, and I, I'm going into this because some really good commentators say that the white is Christ, and some really good commentators say he's not. Uh, also, Also, in the trumpets and in the bowls, the first four are four bad judgments that come upon the earth. So this would be the one oddball where the first of the four judgments is a good thing. And I I just don't... And plus, you'd have Christ breaking breaking the seal, but he is the horseman that rides out. It just... It doesn't seem to fit, and I don't think that that, that, uh, this is what's going on here. What this is, instead, the rider on the white horse is most likely not Christ, but rather, he is a pseudo you know, fake, messianic conqueror. And every pseudo-messianic, every pseudo-messianic conqueror throughout the history of the world who came running in in Christ-like fashion saying, trust me, I'll make everything great, I'll solve all your problems, but in the end what he does is conquer. He's bent on conquest. He's bent on tyranny. Every vision throughout all of history, every character throughout history Who's done this is the rider on the white horse. That's how I believe we should take this text. It's a force that runs through all history. And Jesus said, hey, many will come. Many will come in my name saying, I, saying I'm, I'm the Messiah. Don't believe them. Whether it's spiritual or whether it's political. Right? And we know. We know to be on guard for pseudo-political messiahs who come claiming that, hey, you, just, you, you surrender all your rights to me. And then I'll make everything good and happy and we can live in some utopia vision. And yet, and yet, human beings get suckered for this again and again and again with promises of utopia. But in the end, what happens is conquest. So the first seal gets broken and what comes out is a rider on a white horse bent on conquest. And from the first coming of Christ to the second, this rider runs triumphantly, pseudo-triumphantly, over history, bringing his conquest. The second rider, verse 3 The lamb opened the second seal. I heard a second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. So, the second force, if you will, that gets unleashed now upon the world in a judgment um, is civil unrest. To this rider, it is given to take peace from the earth. So again, throughout history, we look at occasions where peace has been taken from the earth. Men rise up in war against one another. Every civil war that was ever, ever fought, every revolution that was ever fought, every gas chamber that was ever filled, every torture chamber that was filled, is the red horse doing his bidding throughout history. As this force runs rampant over the face of the earth throughout the first and second coming of Christ. The third seal. When the Lamb opened the third seal, verse 5, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. In his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now we'll get to the voice that says, Hey, uh, don't do this and don't damage that. We'll get to that in a second. But the third living, uh, the third uh, uh, horse, the, the rider on the black horse, now brings economic disaster. Right, famine, terrible inflation. That's what's being represented here in the uh, a quart of wheat for a Daenerys and a uh, and so much barley for a Daenerys. A Daenerys was uh, one day's labor, one day's wage for a work for an average worker. So the inflation rate at that rate would have been about a thousand percent. If all you get is a quart of wheat for a full day's work, it was about anywhere from 800 to 1600 percent uh, 1, inflation. So the image here is of terrible economic disaster, economic inflation, famine because of it, and starvation that comes from that food rationing, right? He's got the scales in his hands, and with the scale he weighs out the food to make sure there's just this amount. So that's what's, so again, As we look through the history of the world, right? And every economic crash, every food shortage, every famine, these kinds of things. He's saying, look, this is the kind of stuff that will characterize this age. It it does not look like a sea of glass, right? It's rough. And then fourthly, verse 7, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by wild beasts of the earth. So we got this last rider on a pale, sort of a greenish, (coughs) sickly-looking horse. In Zechariah, he's called Dapple. Um... But we have this last rider, this rider is death, and he he brings death by way of famine and sword and persecution and any other way. I like what Glenn says in, uh, in his series on Revelation, Glenn Parkinson. He says, you know, all these horses are running... You know, over the face of the earth, wreaking their, uh, their, their, their damage all over the earth. And if, if, the, if the scale, the black horse doesn't get you, and if the, the red horse of civil unrest doesn't get you, and if the white horse of conquest doesn't get you, you look out there on the horizon, Glenn says, and there on the horizon is the pale horse. And he's just plodding along, stalking you. You may escape the other three, but in the end, death will get you. It's a kind of a haunting image of death just plodding along. You just keep looking up on the horizon and there's this pale horse and that, that guy that was, that was in Durer's picture. And he's just looking at you like, it's only a matter of time. So it's, it's, uh, it's rough. But these are, the, these are the four horsemen. Now primarily probably what this is is an image of persecution. It's given to him only to kill a quarter of the earth. Okay, let's make some observations about this bee. Uh, under the seals, some observations. First observation about the f- first four seals, because now we're going to go back up into heaven. These first four happen upon the earth. A couple observations. First, our age is the Great Tribulation. One of the, one of the things you'll hear is, when will be the Great Tribulation? We talked about this before. Do we, you get raptured before the Great Tribulation or after the Great Tribulation? What we're learning here is that this whole age is an age of great tribulation. We're going to hear that again in this text. Our age is an age of tribulation. The, the calm waters, the sea of glass, is what we see in heaven, so we can have utter confidence in it. We're moving there, right? but we're not there yet. Our age is an age of real tribulation, great tribulation. So expect it. That, that's the point. Expect this. When all hell breaks loose in your life, right? when, when troubles swirl now in our own country, Right? And we all feel it. I know, if we sat around and talked politics in here, it'd get ugly real quick. We feel that. Well, do not be surprised by this. I mean, I think that's one thing we have to take from Revelation. Don't be shocked by that. I mean, we've lived in this weird, bizarre, nice age. Right? We're all quite spoiled. But don't be surprised if that doesn't last. The four horsemen are not, are not, were not commanded to avoid America. Okay, so just expect it. This is an age of great tribulation. But secondly, the second and really important observation here is that Christ is sovereign over all the troubles of our age. Let's, let's go back and look at these four horsemen now. And let's look at the images of sovereignty here. First, it's Christ who breaks the seals. These things are not happening, and, and Christ is going, oh no, what, there goes a horse. Oh, come, no. Breaks it, another one. Oh, gee whiz, you know, these pro- No, he breaks it. He knows what he's doing. He's worthy. He's the one who breaks the seals. And not only that, but it's the four living creatures around his throne who summon the riders. Listen to each one. I'll only read one, but it's true for all of them. I watched as a lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And the rider came. Now, I don't know what Bibles you all have. I'm reading the NIV. The NIV is right here. Some Bibles will say, come up here. I don't know. Does anybody have a Bible that says, come up here instead of come? New King James says this. And and it is not come up here. When the translators are putting come up here, what they're interpreting it is, is the angel is saying to John, come up here, John. I want you to see this horseman. That is not what the text says. The come here is not a, a command to John. The come here is a command to the horseman the angel of the four living creatures around the throne by Christ's commissioning are sending these horsemen. Now that'll raise some questions in your head, but it's sovereign whatever it is. He's not breaking them and the horses pop out and oh man, I didn't see that coming. No, he breaks it. One of his four living creatures summons the horseman and says come. So he breaks the seals. He commands them. And then notice that it's the Lord who gives these horsemen whatever authority they have. So to the first horseman, I heard one for li- uh, the four living creatures say with a voice of thunder, "Come!" I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. It doesn't say and he had a crown. He achieved a crown. He was given a crown. And then the rider on the red horse. We won't read it all, just you, you might remember it. The rider on the red horse. It was given, he was given a sword. And then the rider on the black horse was given scales. The Lord is sovereign over these horsemen. As troubling as they are, we need to, again, anchor ourselves back into the very beginning of the vision that God is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. Sovereign. And then fourthly, regarding the sovereignty, he breaks the seals, he commands them to come, he gives them the authority, and then fourthly, he limits, he limits each of them. Well, really, we only hear about the two that he limits. This gets us back first to the black horse, the uh, third of the four living creatures. One of the... The third living creature said, "Come!" And there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures. So now, remember, the four living creatures are around the throne, and Christ is seated in the middle of them. The voice comes from the center now of the throne. So this is not this is not the beast talking. This is not this is this is Christ. This is God talking. Then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Right, he said, that's, that's as far as it'll go. Right, a quart of wheat for a denarius, a little bit of barley for a denarius, don't touch the oil, don't touch the wine. Some staples for life I will not damage, these things will suffer. But he limits it. He speaks it. He has authority to say, hey, do this, you don't touch that. And the, bla- and the rider on the black horse has no authority to do anything else. That's all he's going to touch. And then finally, even the rider on the pale horse of death, he is limited to only take or kill a quarter of the earth. Now again, a quarter, don't, I mean, a quarter of the earth is not dying every day, you know, and, and it's not that only a quarter of the earth ever dies. You know, we, we know people die. The image is here, death is coming, but the persecution... The famine, right? The, the, the wild beasts that are mentioned, the effect of that kind of oppressive power is limited. It only goes to the extent that God allows it. The image here is a quarter. Now, when we get to the trumpets, it bumps up to a third. And when we get to the bowls, it's everything. So again, the intensity is going to increase as we cycle back. But for right now, the Lord sets down the limits. So again, we may have questions when we get trampled over by one of the horses or when we look out there and there's the pale horse just plodding and stalking us yeah we we may have all kinds of questions even though we know God is sovereign and that's all, that's all right i really encourage you if you're if you're faced with suffering go read the psalms these guys were good theologians david was an excellent theologian and yet david cries out knowing God is sovereign he still has questions lord why I mean, for crying out loud, Jesus has questions. Jesus, and this is what should free you, even though you know about God's sovereignty and Jesus' sovereignty, this should free you, that Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Just because I know that Christ is sovereign doesn't mean, oh, now it doesn't hurt when the horse tramples me, or, or it doesn't freak me out when I look up and the pale horse is stalking me. I mean, it's, it's rough. And the Bible never says, so now you know I'm sovereign, don't you ask any questions. I'm just telling you this as a pastoral encouragement because I don't want to say, hey, Christ is sovereign, so you if you're worrying, you don't have real faith. No, because I look at the psalmist and they just cry out, and Jesus himself cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and in that cry, when Jesus cries that on the cross... What he's doing is he's, he's going down into all of our suffering. He's going down into all of our despair. He, and he's p- crying it out for all of us. It's not just for him. He's representing all of us. And he cries out, oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this doesn't end all the questions. But it does give us a bedrock. And even when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fact that three days later we see him raised from the dead, we go, ah. So when I feel forsaken and when I feel free to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know the answer. I, and he doesn't give me answers. But I have that bedrock to lay hold of. If you don't have that, you have nothing. So ask the questions. I, I think what we, what we get here is a real privilege to see what Job was never given the privilege to see. Job went through hell too. You know the story. That, right. You read that story. I mean, I read, I read through Job 1. I forget what I was reading it for a text. I mean, it's just overwhelming, right? I mean, the servants come in and say, hey, all your cattle were just killed. Oh, man. And, and then the text, the text just piles it up, right? And then, while, before the servant was finished, another servant came in and said, hey, Job, all your children were just killed. And while he's talking, another servant, I mean, it's just boom, 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 boom. I mean, he's just getting pounded on. And Job has no idea what's going on. Now, we, the readers, have been privy to the heavenly council. See, we heard God and Satan going at it. But notice in in that vision, same thing. God released Satan. Go ahead. You can go after Job, but you don't touch him. But only to this point. No further, and Satan had no authority to go further. But Job had no idea. Job, can you imagine? Job, his whole life's just falling apart. Every right. this burned down. All your animals were killed by these armies. Your children, all your children were in a house. They all died. And it's just smacking Job out of the complete blue. Now, I think we not only have Job, but we actually have this vision, right? Where We, act, we have been privy to see into the heavenly courtroom. And to hear our Lord allowing, but limiting. He's sovereign over these things. Don't forget it. We can trust Him. And the question is, do you trust Him? See, that's what it, uh, well, at the end of the day, what it gets down to then is, do you trust Him? You say, my God, why? Why would you let this happen? Okay, it's a fair question. Bible never says don't ask it. But here's the question. At the end of the day, do you trust Him? Now think real hard about who it is you're trusting you're trusting the one who is the lamb slain but standing he, this is why he's the only one who has the authority to unleash these kinds of things there's nothing capricious about it there's nothing arbitrary about it he's the only one we can trust with this kind of authority I, who else could you trust to release these kind of horsemen to trample over the world and to trample over his people no one except the one who is the land slain yet standing. Do you trust him? That's what we, That's this book is saying, trust him, trust him. Okay, so that's the four horsemen. Let's jump to the fifth seal. you got 15 minutes. Let's jump to the fifth seal now. Now I told you, four horsemen. So we get the earthly, this is happening on earth. Now now in the fifth seal, we're going to jump back up into heaven. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. So now we're in heaven, there's an altar. I saw the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out with a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been killed was completed. Wow! The image we get is a temple scene. So John, he's back now up in the throne room. He's in, if you will, the temple. And there in the temple is an altar, and under the altar are souls. How do you envision this? They have no bodies. They're souls. Don't worry about envisioning it. Just, they're there. And they're under this altar? What altar? What altar is in the temple? It's the altar of incense that's in the temple. There's two altars. One altar outside the temple, the bronze altar, where the sacrifices were made. Inside the temple is the uh, altar of incense. Now, again, there's something going on here, something beautiful, in fact. Outside, on the altar, the bronze altar, you offered the animals up as a sacrifice. And you have the terrible smell of burning these animals. Okay, in their flesh, in their hair, in their innards, and so forth. That's, that's going up, and it's not a pleasant smell. The smoke ascends like a sacrifice up to the Lord. The priest would then take the blood right, and now go in through the veil. Now, only the priest can go in here. We go into the holy place. Now, when I go into the holy place, the image of the temple and the tabernacle was one that, even though it's horizontal, so the priest is walking horizontally, But the symbolism of the tabernacle is you're walking vertically. So you go from the outer court, where everything is bronze, into the holy place, where everything is gold. And then only the high priest could go into the, what? The holy of holies, which is now small, square. We're going to get back to that. It's very important. The holy place was rectangular, not quite perfect. But the holy of holies, square, cube. Now... The idea here in the Old Testament sacrifices was the sacrifices would go up, you'd have the stinky smell of an animal sacrifice, but the priest would then take the blood, he'd walk into the holy place, and when he got into the holy place, the smell would change, like that. Outside, it stinks like sacrifice, but inside, incense. And the image there is that as the sacrifices ascend to the Lord, you walk into the holy place, you smell what God smells. You smell the beauty of the sacrifice. These souls are under the altar of incense. They have been sacrificed. These are the martyrs who die because of their witness to the Lord. But now you come and you see them in the throne room. And where are they? They're at the altar of incense. Their sacrifice goes up to the Lord and arrives as a sweet smelling sacrifice unto him. That's the image, I think, that John is is meaning for us to hear here. Their sacrifice stinks, but it smells beautiful to the Lord. And they cry out to the Lord, the same cry that we cry out. It's the cry of all humanity when you see the suffering of his people and the suffering of the world around us. You cry out, My God, how long? Lord, you're sovereign. With a snap of your fingers, it's over. Like, you get that cry, right? If, you, if you're feeling the four horsemen, and we didn't do it justice, all right? But, but we don't have time. But, but if you're feeling the four horsemen, man, you get the cry of those martyrs. They're under the altar. They themselves gave their lives as a sacrifice, and now they're crying out to the Lord. How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true? How long until you avenge? how long until you avenge our blood? Now, this is not a cry simply for vengeance. This is like, how long until you get back at those SOBs? That, that's not what's going on here. But rather, what they're, when they use the word, how long, O oh Lord, holy and true. There's only one other time that's used. It's back in Deuteronomy 32 where those two attributes are put together, holy and true. And in that image, in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord's saying, I am holy and true and I will come vindicate my name. My name is being, being dishonored, but I will vindicate my name. And so here, they're under the, under the altar and what they're crying out for two things. Well, When are you going to avenge our blood? Don't forget, these guys died with the sound of guilty in their ears. And so they're asking, Lord, when are you going to avenge? When are you going to vindicate us? And on the other hand, they say, Lord, when are you going to vindicate your name? We proclaimed you as holy and true. But what what does the psalmist say? Those who are are persecuting the church, what what are they always saying? Where is the Lord your God? Read the psalms. How many times my enemies say, where is your God? They mock me as I'm dying. I say, no, the Lord God, he's true. He's good. He'll never leave me or forsake me. Oh, yeah, then why are you burning at the stake? Oh, yeah, then why can't you get it? Why are you suffering? If your God will never leave you. What kind of God is that anyway? That's the voice that's ringing in their ears. And now they're crying out, oh, Lord, when will you vindicate us? And when will you vindicate your name before these blasphemers? How long will you let this blasphemy stand? That's what they're crying out for. Now, let's look at God's response. Beautiful. Two things. First, action, and then second, words. Verse 11 action they called out with a loud voice how long sovereign and holy true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood then each of them was given a white robe the first thing the Lord does is act on their behalf they died with the sound of guilt in their ears but they present themselves before the Lord and the Lord rises and comes and clothes them in a white robe don't try to envision it. They're souls. They have no bodies. It's a symbolic image. But what is it? It's like Stephen, as he's being martyred, and he looks up, and the Lord rises. And that's the image here. These martyrs crying out to the Lord, and the Lord gets up, and he gets a white robe, and he puts it on him. The white robe is a symbol of victory, a symbol of purity. Right? They're acceptable. It's a beautiful act. The Lord justifies them while they died with condemnation ringing in their ears and then after the action words and this is where it's sobering and it's tough after he's given them a white robe to each of them was given a white robe and then they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed oh Lord how long how long until you end this and the Lord says you're going to have to wait and there you go. That's, that's the age. I told you that's a theme we're going to have to deal with in here. You're going to have to wait. Sea of glass, but not yet. How long, O Lord, holy and true? You're going to have to wait a little longer. But it's not just waiting. It's purpose-filled waiting, though the purpose may not be encouraging to you. Wait a little longer until the full number of your fellow servants, your brothers, remember John said, I'm your brother, I'm, your fellow, sir, I'm, I'm a fellow sufferer with you, until your fellow servants who will die as you have died until that full number comes to be. More have to die. Now wait, 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 why? Why? You're sovereign. Why, why does anyone have to die? Like why, why does that have to happen? It's not because there's a simple quota. Well, listen, I have this number. Until this many die, I'm not going to be satisfied. No, that, of course that's not it. But rather what we're learning in the book of Revelation is this is the pattern Whether we like it or not, this is the pattern that God has chosen for the building of his kingdom. The death of his saints. Got to come to grips with that in this book. The great uh, minister in the church, Tertullian. Those who have had me as students know. I, I, I give this quote all the time. It just means so much to me. The great Tertullian said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, he wrote that in the midst of Roman persecution, but he could see it coming. He knew where this thing was going. The church is being crushed. I'm sure Christians are crying out, oh my God, how long, Lord? Why is this happening? We're, we're, we're new converts. You know, we're, we're, your, we're your children. And Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church God will plant the seed and from that seed the church will grow a couple hundred years later Rome is gone and the church dominates Europe and it did not happen by conquest and power it happened by the death of his saints and that's what's going on here when he says wait a little longer it's not because I want more people to die it's because the way the kingdom is going to be built is the model of the Lamb let that be the lens through which we interpret everything. It's the Lamb slain who is risen who sends you now to martyrdom. That's what's being told here. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. If you've never read this passage, this one will rock your world. I now rejoice, Paul says to the Colossians, and you know the suffering of Paul. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Who can say that? I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body which is the church I rejoice in my sufferings I rejoice in my sufferings for you and I fill up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ Can you imagine if I ever stood up and said that they call me a heretic What do you mean fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ His sufferings are eternal. His sufferings are efficacious. What could Paul possibly mean? Paul's not saying that Jesus Christ's suffering lacked anything for our justification before God. But what Paul is saying is that for the sufferings of Christ to be brought to the world, his body, the body of Christ, must suffer the church will suffer, and in our suffering, we will fill up what is still to come, what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Yes, his sufferings are infinite and eternal and efficacious. But as the power of his sufferings now goes out into the world, it happens through us. And that, what, that is what the Lord is telling them they need to wait for. And we are to trust that God is bringing his saints in through the suffering of his church, and that he will not let one second more be suffered by his people than that which is necessary, according to his wisdom. He's not casually sitting by and watching him suffer and say, ah, one day I'll put it to an end. No, no, no. It will end the moment that that last saint is brought in. There will not be one ounce of suffering more. The Lord takes no joy pure joy in the suffering of his people only in that through that suffering his glory is being magnified now do we have time to mention the seventh, the uh, sixth seal do you all have any questions maybe let me ask that we got five minutes let me ask if there's any questions about the seals sixth seal verse 12 we'll introduce it probably won't have time to, to get through it the sixth seal oh whoops we're still, we're we're still uh, in the heavenly realm here. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. Oops. The sun turned black. The sackcloth made of goat, like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth, as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken as a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. We're right here, right? In the sixth year, we're right here at the brink of the apocalypse, right at the end. Okay? now we're going to get a pause and a delay in chapter 7, but we're right there. So it hasn't happened. But it's happening, right? So uh, the skies rolled back as a scroll. Skies turn dark. The moon turns to blood. Stars are falling from the sky. Islands are taking off. So this is all apocalyptic language. It does not mean that one day, literally, islands are going to go shooting across the ocean and, and the moon will actually start dripping blood. You know, it's, it, it's a very... It's a, they use this for the, the crumbling down of kingdoms and so forth. They, it's the end of, an, of the age. But notice what happens. There's another cry. So on the one hand, in the fifth seal, we have the cry of the martyrs. Now we're going to have the cry of the rebels. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, notice how many? Seven, by the way. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called, right, here's their cry. They called on the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? So here we're brought right to the moment of final judgment, cosmic upheaval. And we have the cry of the rebellious. All of them. by right? All humanity. All that remain. That's the seven. Rich, poor, slave. Doesn't matter. right? Doesn't matter. Everyone. And what's their cry? Oh, God, please let the rocks fall on us. They run into the caves and they beg for mountains to fall upon them. An avalanche. Anything to keep me from having to face the wrath of the Lamb. That's what they're crying out for. This is, if you're interested, go back and read Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 is the connection here. And in in this image, the Lord comes. He's going to come against Israel, his people, for their idolatry. It's always idolatry. That's what Revelation's about. What God are you serving? What God are you trusting in here? And in Isaiah 2, the Lord says, I'm coming. I'm bringing all my judgment. And it's it's actually kind of funny, I think. But the, the Israelites, to avoid it, they run for the caves. With their idols. So they're, they're worshiping idols. And, and here, the, all you know judgments coming down upon them. And, they, and they, they're trying to avoid it. So they run. You know, And they run to the caves. And they're, they're, just, they're hiding. And then, and then finally they realize, oh, this idol's not doing anything for me, man. Like, I'm, I'm trusting in this idol. And it's just not getting it done. Like, the sky's still dark. And judgment. So they, they, they take their idols and they throw them to the bats and the moles. Isaiah 2. They take their idols and they throw them to the bats and they throw them to the moles. What good are these crappy things? They're worth nothing. That's what we get here. What do you trust in? In that moment, all your idols will fail you. Everything you have trusted in other than Jesus on that day will fail you anything to avoid the wrath of the lamb. And feel the the revelation-esque irony of that phrase, the wrath of the lamb. That's an odd one. Who's scared of a lamb? (laughs) Like, ooh, a lamb. The wrath of the lamb. Yeah, but this is no ordinary lamb. This is the lamb with seven horns. This is the lamb who was slain, yet stands... This is the lamb of Revelation chapter 1, whose voice is like a trumpet, and when he speaks, you fall down dead. This is no ordinary lamb, and this is the only lamb worthy of wielding this kind of wrath. He could be trusted with this wrath and imposing this kind of fear upon people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Not you. You are not worthy of this. I am not worthy of this. So, when people do wrong to you, Romans chapter 12, do not return evil for evil. No. But what does he say? And don't worry about it because evil happens and in the end it just is what. No, no, no. No, he said, Don't you return evil for evil. For vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's a scary verse. He will repay. And he's the only one worthy to do it, to wield that kind of wrath. Because we get our emotions all in the way. We don't do it with justice and truth. But he does. Now, we don't have time today to get into chapter 7. We'll have to start there. I was hoping to get through 7, the intermission. But here's, I leave this with you. That we're in the middle of the horseman, right? We're in the middle of that. The martyrs are crying out. I mean, our day, where are we? We're like up through the fifth seal. I mean, those things are all happening. The martyrs are crying out how long horsemen are running all over the earth. And we see it throughout history. We see it happening in our own country. We're there. But we're not here. We're not to the sixth. But the sixth is coming. The sixth is coming. When the sixth comes, it's oh, There's no repenting. You run to the rocks and you beg for them to fall on you. And the readers of this book were getting a glimpse into the future. And so are we. And again, we're not here this evening to do some academic exercise and go, oh, that's really interesting, the sixth seal. uh, No, what we're here to do is repent. What we're here to do is say, to ask ourselves, what cry is my cry? How long, O Lord, faithful and true and say, look, whatever it takes, I trust you. You're worthy. Join in the heavenly chorus of chapters 4 and 5. Or will it be, oh God, let the rocks fall upon me. I have my idols. These are what I hope and trust in. And anything to be spared from the wrath of the Lamb, I don't want to have to look at the Lamb. And now we, we, we're here, right? We're faced with this. And I challenge you, I challenge you, to repent. Myself too. I believe in Christian. I'm not saying I don't think you're a Christian. That's not how I mean it. I just mean but we always have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our hearts against the idolatry. We have to say, Lord, let the vision you're giving us in Revelation be my vision so that it reorders my priorities. Because as Calvin said, we're by nature idol factories. It comes naturally to us to not believe this vision. To not say, Yes, Lord. I will lose my life for your sake and the gospel's sake so that I might save it. The company of the martyrs under the altar, those are my brothers and sisters. And I will be of their number. Not because I have to be a martyr, but we're all martyrs. We're all faithful witnesses if we are servants of Jesus Christ. Remember, that's what the word means, faithful witness. It doesn't mean you actually have to die, be killed for your faith to be in this number. We die daily, Paul says. My whole life is dying for the sake of Christ. So that in him I might have life. Take it to heart. Think about it. Now, next week, read, if you if you have the gumption. Read. Chapter seven is the intermission. There's a break now. Delay. So while the martyrs were told, wait a little longer, we actually are going to be forced by John to wait a little longer. Okay? So John forces us to wait, and what a glorious wait it is. Chapter seven is a wonderful vision in this waiting, and we get a glimpse into why God would prolong. Oh God, why not end it with a snap? Read chapter 7. He's doing something amazing. Then we'll jump into chapter 8 in the second series. We're going to come back at this now in the image of the trumpets. All right, let's pray and uh, close as we go. Oh Heavenly Father, Lord God, we pray that as we go out from here this week and even head off to our churches this Sunday, that, Lord, you would give us this vision implanted deep within our heads, and not just our heads, but our hearts, so that we might know that we participate in that glorious worship. And not only on Sunday, but, Lord, throughout all of our lives, that everything we do, we are part of that heavenly host praising you. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see that in the midst of the troubles, as the horsemen run ragged over the face of the earth, causing all kinds of waves to roll over us, that, Lord God, you would grant us faith and trust in you. And, Lord, we thank you for the freedom to cry out to you, how long, how long, O Lord? But, Lord, in the midst of our cry, minister to us by your Spirit. Encourage us and uplift us with this vision that, Lord, we might trust you, for you are the only one worthy to wield this kind of authority. Keep us faithful until the end, we pray. Guard us from idolatry, we ask. And send us on our way now safely to our homes, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. This has been a production of the Dwark Hill Study Center. All our lectures and classes are available for free streaming or for purchase on CD and download at dwarkhill.org. Please visit our website to receive more information regarding the study center and upcoming events, and to view articles and blogs from our contributors.